0: Take your Bibles, turn to Romans 8, Romans 8. My goal had been to complete this section of Romans this week in Romans 8. But as is usual, we've got into it. It's going to be a two week message. Romans 8, we're going to look at verses 31, excuse me, through 39. A culture around us continues to degrade at a rapid pace. Christian morality is no longer the norm. Rather, those that hold the biblical truth are viewed as wicked. This is no surprise. We saw in Romans chapter 1 that this was indeed going to be the case. That as God's wrath turns against a culture, it will continue to degrade and become more hostile. And further, believers face struggle and challenge through life. Romans 7 reminded us that as believers, we will battle with sin and we can't get away from it. However, as we saw in Romans one sixteen, and as we have seen throughout Romans chapter 8, the answer is the gospel. In every situation of life, in every circumstance you face, the answer is always the gospel. And we're reminded of that reality in this section today. As chapter 8 brought the glorious news of forgiveness and the amazing benefits of our faith in Christ. We observe that we can't uh, that we can find strength in trial through our glorious future that's coming through a divine comforter that has been given to us in the Holy Spirit. And through that enduring promise that God will work all things together for good. Today, as Paul concludes Romans eight, we answer the question. So what? That's well, nice in theory. It's nice to think about, but. How does this really affect me? How should it really affect me? When we still struggle, life is still hard. So how should we respond? Romans 8, the end of the chapter, gives us the answer to this question. Let's look at verses 31 through 39. Paul writes, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who's at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So this section begins with the important question. What then shall we say to these things? That word then is the idea of therefore. Because of all of this, so what? What do we say to this? And these things that he's talking about doesn't just stop with what he's talked about in verses 28 through 30 or even in chapter eight. But really is a segue leading from all that's been said so far into the rest of the book. He's giving us the so what of the first half of Romans of the book of Romans. Uh, The response to this. So what? What shall we say to this? Comes in the form of five questions. Paul responds with five rhetorical questions to help us think rightly about everything we have seen so far. The reality of the gospel, that everybody is totally depraved, Romans 1 through 3. That the, the Christ came to die for us and to redeem us and to grant us life, verse chapters). 4, 5, and 6, but yet we still struggle with sin, chapter 7, and there are amazing benefits to the gospel, chapter 8. And these questions help us work through the everyday ramifications of the gospel in the middle of our struggle. As we look at these questions and their answers, if you allow them to seep into your life, They will change it. They will change your outlook on everything you face. So as we look at this, let's look at the first question. It's found in verse 31. He says, what shall we say then to these things? Question number one, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is on our side, who can be successful opposing us? This is an important question to ask today. If Paul had simply asked, who is against us? Well, that answer is quite long, right? As we think even today about who is against us, we could certainly answer it a lot of different ways. The unbelieving, persecuting world is opposed to us. Indwelling sin is a powerful adversary. Death is still an enemy. Defeated, but still here. We see that as we stand for truth, people don't really appreciate that. Christian morality has moved away in our culture. However, he doesn't ask who is against us. He asks, if God is for us, then who can stand against us? When God is on our side, these things have no chance at victory. Obviously, One man says, Paul does not mean that nobody will, in fact, oppose us. As Paul knows from his own experience, he alludes to this in verse 35. Opposition to believers is both varied and intense. What Paul is suggesting by this rhetorical question is that nobody and no thing can ultimately harm or stand in the way of the one who God is for. The reality is all the powers of of hell may set themselves against you. But if God is on your side, they can never prevail. God's faithful love endures through and surmounts all trials and struggles and obstacles in life. As you face the challenges of life today, and it may they may seem insurmountable. And sometimes the struggles you face seem pointless. God's purposes will prevail. He will work everything for good. God on our side guarantees victory. God on our side guarantees that in the end, all things will work for good. In the end, we will look back on on even the most ambiguous parts of our life. And we'll see the incredible work of God on our behalf. The church father Christostom put it this way. Yet those that be against us so far, are they from thwarting us at all? That even without their will, they will become to us the causes of crowns and procurers of countless blessings. And that God's wisdom turns off their plots unto our salvation and glory see how really no one is against us. They try, they struggle, they battle against the believers. The culture fights Christian morality, and yet it always returns. God always wins. This harkens back to Isaiah chapter 40. As Isaiah is looking at the culture around him, Israel is about to enter into captivity because of their wickedness. The rulers have turned away from God. The religious leaders are, are deceptive and conniving and hate God. And here's Isaiah's response in Isaiah 40, verse 22. He says, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. He says this world, they struggle, but God controls even the rulers of the world. He says, there is nothing They think they're taking root and God blows and they fade away. He says in verse 25, to whom then will you compare me that I should be like him? Says the Holy one, lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creators of the ends of the earth. He does not grow faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. God reminds Isaiah, as you are looking at the culture around you, and you see the National rulers failing miserably. As you see the religious leaders turning away from God. Who is the one in control? Look around you. Who created all of this? Who sustains it by the word of his power? And he asks, have you not known? Of course you have. Have you not seen? Yes, you have. The Lord is the everlasting God. He is the creator of the ends of the earth. He doesn't grow weary or faint. He doesn't forget you. You might feel like you can't make it to tomorrow, but God has already determined tomorrow. So in the middle of your struggle, remember your God. If God is for you, who can be against you? And so we respond like the psalmist in Psalm 27, one, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Psalm 46, he says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. We don't fear, he says in verse 11 of Psalm 46, the Lord of hosts is with us. God is our fortress. Is that true for you? Do you believe that? That in the midst of the deepest struggles you are facing, as you look at the culture around us degrading and you fear the future, do you believe that God is your fortress? Do you believe that God is unchanging? Do you believe that God holds it all in the palm of his hand? He does not grow weary. He's got it under control. And so the resounding answer to the question, if God is for us, who can be against us, is no one. God wins. God controls. So what do we say to the gospel in our life? We say, God, let take my life. I trust you completely, because if God is for me, no one can stand against me. There is a movement in the church today that would say we must alter our message in order for the world to accept us. We must adapt to the times and adjust to all that is going on, lest the world hate you. We see the response even of pagans against the justices that appear to have ruled against Roe v. Wade. And we fear. We see the violence that is there and we think, what is going on in our world? And we are reminded, no one can stand against us. There's no need to change the unalterable message of the gospel and the word of God. Because the sovereign, eternal God stands behind it. So anchor your soul to God. This leads then into the second question. Found in verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The question is, how will God not graciously bless us? Here's the crux of this question. God already did the hardest and greatest thing. Don't you think he can handle the easier And lesser thing. God gave his son. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Now, interestingly, there's a word that that for some reason, I I honestly don't quite understand, is missing from most translations. It's the word indeed indeed. If God who indeed did not spare his own son. It's it's a magnifier, an intensifier. God did this for you. The phrase points back to it actually quotes Genesis 22. Genesis 22 is a fascinating chapter. Abraham and Sarah have finally been given a son that had been promised to them. The son of Isaac. He's grown. He's now a teenager. And God's promise appears that it is going to be fulfilled to Abraham. And then God comes to Abraham and says. You need to take your son, your only son, Isaac. And you need to sacrifice him on the altar to me. And you place yourself in Abraham's shoes. The son that he has longed for, for nine decades, was finally granted to him. And now God wants him back. And what does Abraham do? He trusts God. Hebrews 11 informs us that he believed that God would bring him back from the dead. And so he takes Isaac and they go up to the mountain. And along the way, Isaac says, Dad, we forgot something. Says, what do you mean, Dad? We have the wood. We have the fire. God, Dad, we forgot the sacrifice. By the time they get to the top of the mountain, the temple—what would ultimately become the Temple Mount there in Jerusalem—Isaac understands. I'm the sacrifice. Isaac is a picture of Christ, willingly allows himself to be bound and placed on the altar. Abraham is a picture of God the Father, lays him on there. And raises the knife. And at that moment. God intervenes. He says in verse 22. By myself I have sworn declares the Lord. Because you have done this. And have not withheld your only son. I know you trust me. And here he points back to that picture. Just as Abraham would not withhold his son from God, so God has not withheld his son from you. But sacrificed him on the cross to redeem you from your depravity. The immeasurable greatness of God's love is seen in the infinite nature of his sacrifice on our behalf. The greatest sacrifice that could be made, his own son. And so the cross is the guarantee of the continuing and unfailing generosity of God. We think of John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This was God's eternal plan to demonstrate his love for you. Isaiah 53 10 tells us it was the will of the Lord to crush him. But if God has already done that. Sacrificed his son for your sin to redeem you. Don't you think that we can be confident that God will bless his people. It's not as though he did that and said, no, wait a minute. I mean, that situation, that's too much. Dealing with all of your sin and your rebellion and all the issues that come with it. I mean, that, that was something, but that thing you face now, that's a step too far. Paul says, He who did not spare his own son, but willingly and freely gave him for you. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Give out of grace to those who don't deserve it. Continue to pour out this grace and he will freely give you all things. Well, man says, since he has done the greatest thing imaginable, sacrificing his son to death for their sake, then it surely follows that the Father in his grace will grant them everything along with his son. What's he talking about? Well, first, he's speaking about our citizenship in heaven. Part of these all things is this fact that you are granted everything in Christ through your citizenship in heaven. Philippians 3 20 and 21 tells us our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body and by the power that enables him even to subject himself to all things. As he writes to the Philippians, Philippi at that time in which Paul wrote that letter was a Roman colony. That meant that every citizen of Philippi was also a Roman citizen. An amazing privilege. But the implications of asserting our citizenship in heaven is that we are a colony of heavenly citizens here on earth. We're not of this world. The song states, this world is not my home. I'm just passing through. We are citizens of another realm. And as citizens of heaven, we gain all the blessings and benefits of heaven. It means this broken body, it's going to be fixed. He's going to give us a glorious body. This sin-stained world is going to be redeemed and corrected. And we get a part of it. All of that is ours. But that should result in a very definite action. He says we await our Savior to come. We, we long for him to come and we live as if it would be today. And we focus on that world, not on this one. We see as well that this results in God's generous grace on us. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 12. In him, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. We have redemption. We we don't have sin anymore. While we struggle with it daily, we no longer are condemned by it. We can say no to it. And one day it will be gone forever. And he has... Given us the riches of his grace, verse eight, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory here in Ephesians one, we see God's generosity to those who believe it took the wealth of God's grace to redeem sinners The cost of sin was the supreme sacrifice of God's son, Jesus Christ. And yet he lavishes this grace on us. He doesn't hold back. He's not skimpy with it. It's not like when you tell your kids you need to share that candy bar with your your sibling. And they go, okay. They break off the most minuscule part they can. Here you go. God doesn't do that to us. He backs up the dump truck of His grace and He unloads all of it on you. We cannot sin beyond God's grace because, as wicked and as extensive as our sins might be or become, they never approach the greatness of God's grace. You can never be removed from God's grace. And the result is he's given us wisdom and insight, discretion and insight to discern God's will, wisdom to understand how to live life properly, and insight to comprehend what the real problems and needs are. We're reminded of James 1.5, If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God that gives to all men liberally. When you don't know the answer, And you're asking for wisdom in your life. You can go to God. And God will unload it on you. He'll not give it to you just a little bit. It says he gives it to you liberally. And the end will be humanity renewed. Verse 10 tells us it's as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things on heaven and things in earth. And we're reminded of Philippians 2, where the day will come when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All things will be renewed in Christ and made right. And so as the world stands opposed to us, As the world leaders and our national leaders and our state leaders continue to do things that baffle us. And perhaps we question. Is God still in control? We are reminded that God never left his throne. And the day is coming when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And so we don't have to force it. We trust God's plan. We let him do his work and we stay faithful. All things will be renewed in Christ and made right because we have received an inheritance. And we touched on this back in chapter earlier in chapter eight. But we have this inheritance that God has given to us. And so we are reminded to live for that. Matthew 6 tells us verse 19, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. And too often believers forget that our treasure is not here. It is coming. And what we collect here doesn't really matter. Too many Christians spend their time and their money on stuff here that fades away. This is ever important in the middle of this recession and inflation we're in, where it seems as though often the first thing believers do is cut out what they give to God. But it's a sign of where your treasure is. What matters more to you, this or what's coming because where your treasure is that's where your heart will be also and we're reminded that we have an in- inheritance coming that cannot be compared first peter 1 3 and 4 tells us blessed be the god and father of our lord jesus christ who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of jesus christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away Recession and inflation can't touch it. And it's reserved in heaven for you. What is this inheritance? Ephesians 1 3 tells us Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. God has promised to supply everything you need peace, love, grace. Wisdom, eternal life, joy, victory, strength, guidance, guidance, power, mercy, forgiveness, righteousness, truth, fellowship with God, spiritual discernment, heaven, eternal riches, glory. They all belong to you. But too often we lose sight of God. And so in Matthew chapter six. He goes on to say, why are you worried about the future? Christ asks, why are you worried about what's coming? And as he's sitting there on the mountain. With the grass and the flowers and the birds, he points to these things. He tells the crowd gathered there, look around you at the flowers. Aren't they beautiful? If God clothes the flowers with Beauty. Don't you think he'll clothe you? He'll take care of those needs. Look at the birds that are flying around. They don't work. And yet God feeds them. Don't you think God will supply for your needs? He concludes in verse 31. Therefore, don't be anxious saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly father knows you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. In other words, we're to remember who we are. Don't act like unbelievers. The prices continue to go up, and as we need our money to go farther, it is easy to begin to act like unbelievers. It's easy to begin to, to worry. It's easy to begin to take away from God. But we're reminded don't act like unbelievers. It says, don't be anxious saying, What will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear? That's what the Gentiles do. That's what the unbelievers do. Don't act like that. Those who sit and worry about the future and those who sit and worry about their circumstances, they're acting like people who don't know God. Jesus states that worry is a characterization of unbelievers. Worry is is thoughtless and an affront to God who knows the needs of his people. And even worse, it is essentially pagan because pagans run after these things, not God's kingdom and righteousness. John MacArthur says, those who have no hope in God naturally put their hope and expectations in things they can now enjoy. They have nothing to live for but the present. And their materialism is perfectly consistent with their religion. J.C. Ryle said, let the heathen, if he will, be anxious. He knows nothing of a father in heaven, but let the Christian who has a clearer light and knowledge give proof of it by his faith and contentment. We should not act as though we don't have God. We must respond recognizing that we have a God in heaven. You see, worry is not a trivial sin. Worry is stating that you don't believe God is in control, that you don't believe in the sovereignty of God. Worry declares to all around, I don't trust God. I don't trust his word. I don't trust his promises. Worry shows that circumstances control us and not God's word. Worry is not just pointless and destructive. It's actually slander against God himself. Instead, we are to seek the kingdom of God and his provision. He says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Simply stopping our worry is not enough. We must go beyond this. We must remember to seek God's kingdom. We need to replace our temporal goals with goals of far greater significance. We are to move from focusing on this world to something of far greater significance. We are to seek first God's Kingdom, And what does that mean? It means that we make the kingdom our focus. It means we long to spend time in the word. We relish time in prayer. We serve others selfish, selflessly, and we invest financially in the kingdom. We need to recalibrate our focus. We're so focused on the world around us. We're focused on our jobs and the hardships there. We're focused on the tightening of our finances. We're focused on the issues that our children are facing. We're focused on our outdoor stuff. We're focused on financial stability. We're focused on our families. We're focused on everything except the kingdom of God. It's easy now as you look at your time and as you look at your checkbook. To say my time is being... Pressed. So what do I give up? Well, the easiest thing to give up is the serving of the people of God. My finances are being pressed. So what do I cut? I cut what I give to the kingdom of God. But Christ challenges us with something very different. He says, if you seek first God's kingdom, then the rest of it will be taken care of. I challenge you with something as your time and your finances are being pressed as this world is seeking to press out your faith. That's the last thing you need to give up, because if you give up that you give up the promises of God. But if you invest in your relationship with God, with your time and your energy and your finances, God says, I will supply all these other things for you. This is not the time to cut those things out. This is the time to double down on them. It's the time to give even more of it. Demonstrate the goodness of God, because we are reminded if God did not spare his son. How will he not freely give you all things? Now, This is not a text for the prosperity gospel. This is not saying that God will somehow make our way easy That we'll have these things in abundance. Give your seed money and you'll get a Mercedes. It's not what God's saying. What this text is saying is that God will supply our needs. He will take care of us. And so we can have peace. This is the promise of Isaiah. Isaiah 26, 3 and 4. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. Because he trusts you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. It's the foundation for the verse we looked at last week. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. It's stated so well in Psalm 84, verse 11. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Did you fill your gas tank and you see that really big number? You wonder, how is this gonna work? My outgoes going up, my income's not. As you look at your time. And you see all the things that you feel you have to do, and you just don't know how you're going to get it all done. As you look at the culture around you degrading and you wonder, God, how are you going to provide in the middle of this? You worry about your kids and your grandkids. The question is this. If God did not spare his own son, but freely gave him for us all, how will he not with him give us graciously of all things? And the answer to that question is that he will and he has graciously given us all things. God will and has graciously blessed us. But we have to be humble enough and trusting enough to see it. If you're like me, you have plan A, B, C, D, E, F, and G. But often God loves to wipe those off the board. So that like Paul, we will learn that his strength is sufficient for us. His grace is enough. So we can glory in our infirmities that the power of God will rest upon us. Now is not the time to step away from God. Now is not the time to tighten up on God. No, in the middle of all of this, now is the time to rest and trust in God. To demonstrate our faithfulness to God and to give graciously. But you have to believe it. So I challenge you to test God, put him to the test, go all in and see what happens. Because God didn't spare his son. He gave him for us. It's not like he's going to now say what you're doing is too hard. You know, making your dollars stretch a little farther. That's too much for me. I mean, giving my son for your sin that I can do, but handling world economy, that's awful hard. Lord sits on his throne and he laughs. He's got it. So will you trust him? So I said, this is going to be a two-week thing as we work through these five questions. And so we're going to stop here today. Let me give you a few so-whats to work with. They're not going to be on your screen, so I'll try to repeat them for you. The first so-what is this. Rest in God's sovereignty. Rest in God's sovereignty. If God is for us, who can be against us? No one. So rest in that. It's easy to look at the influences of the world around us and the world powers and to rub our hands in worry. But you don't need to. If God's for us, who can be against us? Rest in his sovereignty. But secondly... Trust in his grace. If God didn't spare his son, how will he not graciously give us all you need? And the answer is he will. So trust in his grace. But that trust doesn't mean a passive action, it is an active action. Give to God sacrificially. This is the test today in our culture today, not out of the excess. Here's what I have left. Here's what I can give to God. But first, here's what I will give. And I'm going to trust him to get to make the rest work out. Put him to the test. My wife and I have seen him do this over and over and over. As we have said, God, I don't know how this is going to work. We need two plus two to equal twenty two. We're going to give and trust. And every time he has shown himself faithful. So trust in him. Trust in him with your time. Trust in his grace with your actions. And finally, don't live like a pagan. Live like a Christian. Don't be anxious. Pagans are anxious. Christians seek first God's kingdom. So don't live like a pagan, live like a Christian and seek God's kingdom first. That's the answer of the gospel. See, what's the answer to inflation? The gospel. What's the answer to the political struggle we're facing? The gospel. What's the answer to the physical struggle you are facing? It's the gospel. The answer is always the gospel, because when you see God and all he has done, you can rest in his sovereign care. Your view of God will determine your view of life. So view God rightly and rest in the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for this needed reminder. Lord, I've needed this. The pressures of life have increased. Financial struggles have tightened. Culture has degraded. It is easy to lose sight of you. To worry and to wonder. Lord, we are reminded this morning that with you on our side, victory is guaranteed. Your kingdom will be and is being established. That you graciously give us all things. You have promised that if we seek first your kingdom, everything we need will be provided for us. So, Lord, help us to claim, to trust, and to obey that promise. Help us to demonstrate to a lost and dying world around us that we are different in the way that we live, that the gospel will be clear, that people might ask a reason for the hope that is in us. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.